Open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you notice, if you notice my band-aids today, it's because I've been doing tile work. <laughs> you, you measure home improvement jobs in uh, band-aids and trips to the store. I started working on this a week ago by chipping up the old tile. And as soon as I hit the chisel about twice, I went, oh, this is going to be so much work. (laughs) (laughs) The only way I get anything done at home is to start, because then I've messed it up so much that I'm forced to finish. And uh, it was harder than expected, which should be expected by now, but it never is. I worked away on cleaning and leveling, and I finally mixed the mortar and laid the tile, and it was beautiful. You know, I, I was really smart this time. I made a pattern for the floor of the shower out in the shop, and I cut all the tile that had to be cut and laid it all on there. I thought, boy, I am really ahead of the game mix the mortar and put it down and put the tile down. And I thought, boy, that doesn't seem like it's sticking very good. I'll push it a little bit more. And several hours later, I just took it all off. Too dry. The mortar was too dry. I know how wet the mortar is supposed to be now. I'm an expert. (laughs) Uh, The problem with work is that it's work. But the only way to get the results of work is to work. And as we come to Philippians and the discussion of unity one more time, today we're going to focus on the work. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, what we've learned, or in the last week, what we learned was, uh, first of all, the, the basis or the foundation of having unity, which essentially are some, some truths of God. And as we understand those truths, we know that it's, that it's possible to live in unity. And those truths are, first of all, our salvation, Uh, Our salvation makes it possible for us to be like Christ so there can be unity. And then the love of God and the love that we have toward one another is is essentially uh, part of how we live out unity. And then the relationship that we share through the Holy Spirit. We are one in the Lord through the Holy Spirit, so it's possible for that ultimate reality to become our daily reality. And then mercy, the idea that God has been merciful to us, we should be merciful to others. All of that is the basis of unity. The second thing we looked at is the definition of unity. What does it mean for us to be unified as a body of believers? Or you could also apply this to your family. It means, first of all, common thoughts. And common thoughts only come from a common mind, the mind of Christ, which is revealed to us in the Bible. If we, as, we're, as we're trying to say, what does it mean for us to be unified? It doesn't mean that we all have exactly the same opinion on everything. 
We may, you know, uh, we didn't vote on the color that we painted in the auditorium. And don't raise your hand, but some of you may think it's beautiful. Some of you may think, no, I wish it was, you know, turquoise or something. And, and, and yet we can still be unified if we have the thoughts of Christ because what we're thinking is what really matters and how can we accomplish what really matters. Then we need to have a common love. Uh, a unity means having a common love. We love each other equally. We don't play favorites. We don't be prejudiced or partial. And then a common existence. We share our lives together. The scripture says literally to have one soul. And then uh, ultimately what this results in is a common purpose. And, and the purpose is, is, is sort of part of the basis, but also the definition of unity. What are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to achieve uh, evangelism, discipleship, outreach. We're trying to grow up the saints and reach those who are not saints yet. Now this week we come to this middle section, which is the work. How, what do we have to do in order to accomplish what that definition says? Well, it begins right here with having ambition for God and not for self. Unity is accomplished through ambition for God and not for self. Let's read the scripture, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. And here's where our work begins in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The word selfish ambition in the King James, if you're using that translation, it's the word strife. The word selfish ambition has a root meaning of to create a group. Sort of like our word click when we use it in a negative sense. And the idea is that if a person has selfish ambition, what they're doing is gathering people into their group that they are the leader of. It's them exalting themselves. And I, and I think the, the way we could best understand it would be this. Selfish ambition is self-promotion to gain significance of some kind. To gain significance of some kind. And, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the pursuit of personal significance is the foundation of sin. The pursuit of personal significance is the foundation of sin. And it starts with the first sin in God's creation, which starts with Satan. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is a recording of the thoughts of Satan when he sinned. He was a created angel, perhaps even the top of the created order. He was created with power. 
and with authority, but he came to a point where he said, I don't want to be one of. I want to be the one. It should, it should not surprise us that's a, that that's essentially what he said to Eve. He said, Eve, you can be something. You can be significant. And the serpent said to the woman, in, in relation to what God had said, he said to her, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, of the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan wanted to have the top place in the universe. He tempted Eve to take an equal seat with God. Human nature, not our sinful nature, but our human nature, contains a desire to be seen as important, big, significant. This comes to the surface in a unique way in each individual. And some of those ways can seem quite uh, harmless and benign. And yet, if that is what drives life and not the desire to honor the Lord, it becomes a sinful desire. Uh, Little girls and little boys have certain aspirations. They say, this is what I'm going to be. And frequently, it has something to do with being significant. A little girl may just simply say, I'm going to be a mom. And when she gets to that age of wanting to be a mom... And the momness doesn't come. How does her life turn? Is her life centered around that or centered around Christ? A little boy looks at the athletes and he says, I'm going to be a superstar. Nobody aspires to be on the second string. My son, when he was in junior high, said he's going to be a professional football player right up until the point where everybody grew past him. And he realized it wasn't going to happen. But he aspired to be something. Some people want to be the class president or the president of the company. Some people long to be known as a skilled craftsman. Some people want the recognition of a large paycheck. For some, it is as subtle as becoming angry when some expected recognition is not given. They don't respect me. What does that really mean? What that means is I'm something and they're not recognizing it. People have all kinds of desires for significance. In 1991, Wanda Holloway asked her ex-brother-in-law to hire a hitman to kill the mother of a girl who was competing with her daughter for a spot on the junior high cheerleading squad. She wanted the mother killed because she reasoned that 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 girl would be so devastated by her mother's death that she would drop out of the competition, thereby giving her own daughter the coveted spot on the cheerleading squad. And we look at that and say, how messed up is that? You know what that is, folks? That is the desire for significance gone unchecked. My daughter is going to be there. Because if she's there, it reflects on me and it makes me something. The desire for significance, 
And the pursuit of significance is a sinful pursuit. It shouldn't surprise us that this also happened with the, the, the disciples who became the apostles, but it started with their mom. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said, grant that my two boys can sit one on the right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. This is Wanda Holloway in the first century. She just didn't hire a hitman to kill the rest of the disciples. But she said, my two boys, I want them to be on top. And of course, it didn't stop there because, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Well, why is that? Obviously, they didn't want those two guys to be on the left hand and the right. They wanted to be on the left hand and the right. And there's other scripture that talks about them arguing about who was the greatest as they walked along. They really, they really didn't get it. The sad truth is, the sad truth is, we would have been arguing the same way if we'd have been on their spot. The question we have to ask ourselves in terms of unity is this: Why do I do the things that I do, especially in regard to serving at church? Why do I do the things that I do? God says, if your motive if your motive for doing something, even serving the Lord, is some kind of personal recognition, then your ambition is wrong. Now, he doesn't say that ambition for God is wrong. It is possible to be ambitious for God. There's nothing wrong with vigorous action, even ambition to serve the Lord, to accomplish something for the Lord, but not when it's based in self-promotion. And, and the only person who can determine this is the individual. Nobody from the outside can know what's going on in a heart. This is Todd Janes, a really, really big picture of Todd Janes. <laughs> you remember him? He was at our missionary conference. Okay. And I just used Todd. I could have used a lot of other folks. Todd is ambitious to serve the Lord in Cambodia. Now, what I mean by that is, the Lord has burdened him, and he has expressed this in saying, I want to serve God in Cambodia. Okay, Now, could that be a sinful ambition? Could that be a selfish ambition? It could be. Only God truly knows. But when I look at him from the outside and apply godly wisdom to trying to say, is it a righteous ambition? I have to say yes. Because when he met me for the first time, he didn't say, let me tell you why I'm the best missionary you've ever met. Or anything close to that. He didn't demand or even suggest anything about his time here. When we said, we'd like you to do this, we'd like you to do this, we'd like you to do this, he said, that'd be fine. See, a person who has an ambition for God says, I want to serve God. I want to be used by God, however God wants to use me. You want me to do this? You want me to do that? You want me to drive from, from Maple Valley to Ferndale twice in a week? That'll be fine. No problem. No complaints. No expectations. No demands. He's ambitious for the Lord and the lost of the Lord in Cambodia. Now, in contrast... To Todd's humble service, many, many years ago, I knew of a church organist 
in a church where they had four organists and they rotated. And they used to have, as churches did, the organ and the piano. And they had four, five, six pianists and they had about four organists. And, and they rotated the organist every month and the pianist every month. And everybody took a turn. They all had different styles and, and it was all uh, just lovely. But this one organist said, we should elect an organist and that person should be the permanent organist. That's what some churches do, and that's what I think we should do. The only problem with that was she was the least of the four. And if we'd elected, had elected one, she would not have been the one. But it seemed pretty clear that that's what she thought was going to happen, that maybe she would get elected. If you're doing things to gain something for yourself, you are not pleasing the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The scripture says Jesus was meek. And the word meek essentially means to have power under control. In other words, he wasn't always going around telling everybody uh, some things about himself. In fact, he made it kind of hard for him to figure out sometimes. He, he controlled a lot of what was going on. But if you have, in contrast to the meekness of wisdom, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, that's our word, selfish ambition, if you have that in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom that includes bitter envy and self-seeking, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exists, confusion and every evil thing will be there. God says if we live in selfish ambition, the result will not be the progress of God's work. It will be the confusion and the detriment of God's work. And so what we understand, first of all, is this. We can be unified if we will put ourselves away, put ourselves aside, and make sure that our ambitions are for God's work and not for ourselves. Ambition for God, not self. Number two, the work of unity includes Christ-esteem, not self-esteem. Christ-esteem and not self-esteem. Look again at Philippians 2, please, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through conceit. Conceit. Our English word is a pretty good rendering of the, of the concept in the Greek word. The literal Greek word is empty glory. Empty glory. Um, vain glory, it says in the King James Version, or vain conceit in the NIV. It's a compound word in the original language. And so the word for glory means to give honor. Um, and, and, you know, we might say, uh, I would give honor to Raul and say, Raul, I am terribly out of practice in leading worship. You do an excellent job, and I can't wait for you to be back here next week. <laughs> That would be, or I could say, Marianne did a lovely job with that song, or I could say uh, uh, Don Hubbard did a great job coming down here to open the church this morning. That's giving glory. Now, we don't use the word glory because it seems kind of sacrilegious, like we should only use the word glory with God, but the word means to give honor, to give honor where honor is due. 
Now here, the word is compounded with the word empty. Empty glory. Um, we use the word flatter. Flatter is when you say something that's not really true, but you're trying to kind of pump somebody up foolishly. This is talking about self-flattery. Self-flattery. Um, it, this is a kind of a, a, a verse that would apply here. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. In other words, if somebody else comes along and says, boy, you did a great job, it's okay to receive that and to thank the Lord with it. And, and, it, and we understand that. You know, like, like Todd Jaynes didn't tell me. I, I, I emailed Todd Jaynes and said, I want a picture of you. I'm going to use you as an illustration. And he didn't email me back and say, here's what you should say. Because <laughs> if he had, I wouldn't have used him as an example. Okay? So this is me saying Todd James is a good man as far as I can see. And, and that's the, the idea of Proverbs 27. Let another man praise you. Now, the word self-esteem is the modern psychological term for thinking positively about yourself. There is a sense in which the word is neutral if you phrased it this way. If you ask the question, what is your self-esteem? What do you think of yourself? In that sense, it's a neutral term. If we use it in the, in the classic term, which is, I don't have enough esteem, I have to think more of myself, then, then we get into a, a sinful element. But the idea of just asking the question, what do you think of yourself, that's a, that's a, a good question and we ought to ask it. And in fact, God tells us how we ought to think of ourselves. And that's, I've used the word Christ esteem because the word self-esteem has gotten so misused in different ways. But here's what God says we should think. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Uh, in, in channel surfing years ago, I saw a little snip of a country music video that just burned its way into my mind. The name of the song was Bulletproof, and 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And the essence of the video was a guy in a tavern drinking, and when he drank and he looked in the mirror, he saw himself 10 feet tall and big and strong. And he saw his girlfriend as beautiful. And, and the, the bulletproof is the idea that he could go out and you know, fight people and, and he would prevail because he was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. But the reason he thought that way was because he was drunk. He was not thinking clearly. That's the way in which the word sober is used. This is actually the Greek word for being sober as in not being drunk. And so what God says is, your thinking should be clear, not like a drunk person. And so it's, I would have to assume that he's, that he's saying, if you think more highly than you ought, you are not thinking soberly. But he never says, think poorly of yourself. Look at yourself and say, I'm terrible, I'm no good, I'm nothing. He never says that. But what he does say and we're not going to look at all the scripture that surrounds it, but he says a whole series of, of thoughts that, that we ought to have as part of sober thinking. 
Sober thinking says, my salvation is from the Lord and is wholly undeserved. Therefore, glory to him that I'm even in a church. See, we're thinking about how can we be unified. The the sinful element is conceit. The righteous element is sober thinking. And so the, the godly Christian looks at themselves and says, it's a miracle that I've been born again. I know that I was going this way and God pulled me that way and, and he got me to a place and I heard the truth and I was able to believe. Praise God that I'm even saved and in a church. Number two, sober thinking says, my spiritual gift is from God. If To whatever extent you serve in the church, it's the result of God giving you a spiritual ability to do that. The only reason that I am here preaching is because God called me not only to preaching, but first of all to salvation, and then gave me this gift. This is not a human thing. I did not enjoy speech class when I was in public school as a junior higher or a high schooler. This is a God thing. And so if we realize whatever I use... Whatever I'm able to do within the church, it's because God has gifted me. Now, you know, we we don't want to take a lot of time to talk about spiritual gifts, but there are a lot of human talents we have. For instance, tile work, (laughs) which are not spiritual gifts. I might use tile work in the Lord's work, But chances are the way that I approach the facility in the Lord's work will have something to do with whatever my promptings are from the Lord. Music is not a spiritual gift, but it is an ability or a natural gift from the Lord that can be used in a spiritual way. A well-known Christian singer of many years ago, John Fisher, one of the early writers of, of contemporary Christian music, he said, My gift isn't music. He said, I'm gifted as a teacher, and I use music to teach. You see, there's all kinds of ways we can do it, but whatever your gift is, it works its way out into the church, showing mercy, uh, being helpful, you know, whatever it is. And sober thinking says, you know what? That ability came from God. That prompting came from God. So glory to him for what I can do in the church. Number three, my mind is from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. Your ability to think, however you think, comes from God. And we all have different abilities in thinking. Some, some can think about this or that. You know, some think about you know, numbers and some think about how we build things or whatever it is. All kinds of different thinking. Glory to Him for what I have learned in my life and for what I'm able to understand. I don't take glory in my own ability to think. My life experiences have been guided by God. Glory to him for how he has shaped for for how he has shaped my development. Uh, I was thinking about this yesterday with a personal connection to somebody over in Everson. A guy in the church over there recruited me to be a volunteer firefighter. He said, "Hey, you want to be in the fire department?" And until that point, I had never thought of being a firefighter. It was just, I don't know, it just wasn't on my radar screen. And because he did that, 
I got into the fire service. I got into chaplaincy and a whole series of other things that the Lord led me to. And I thought sometime when I'm going to make a point to go see him and say thank you for that. But you see, my life experience there was totally guided by God. That was not my own doing. And, and, and so if I can stop and say whatever experiences I've had in life, it's from God. So glory to him for how he has shaped my development. That is sober thinking. One more. My place in this particular part of the body of Christ is from God. Glory to him for how I can contribute to this body. Now, what I mean by that is every body of Christ, every local body of Christ has a different mix of people. And God brings in people with different gifts and different experiences so that everything can happen. And so you might be a, you know, you have a certain little niche and and it's really important and you do a great job there. The temptation is to somehow get to thinking, I am so important, rather than thinking, glory to God, he brought me here and my talent, skills, gifting is needed and, and uh, to thinking in that way. And so the net effect of it is here. Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Conceit glories in self, Christ esteem glories in the Lord. And, and that's, that's essentially why John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. We have to realize that if we don't live in Christ esteem, if we don't live in sober thinking, um, we're going to have a detrimental effect on the church. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited with the result being that we provoke one another and envy one another. Humble thinking, Christ esteem sober thinking, allows us to let other people be great and to let God use us in some way that he deems great and to let God's work be accomplished. Well, the, the third and the, the, the final thing, uh, no, not the, not the final thing, let's see. Let me see if it's the final one. I think it is. I can't even remember my own notes. Do I have a number four? Uh, no, I don't. This is the final thing. Focus on others. Focus on others, the work of unity. Ambition for God, not selfish ambition. Christ esteem, not conceited self-esteem. And then a focus on others. Philippians 2 Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but instead of those two things, in a lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The word interest here is actually just the word thing. Your things, my things. But the word that's really interesting is the word look. Look out for 
others. And the word is where we get our word scope. Should have brought that picture of uh, Adelaide looking through her binoculars. She got some little toy binoculars and she took them to church. She's in about the fourth row, really scoping in on the preacher. (laughs) That's what God says we're supposed to do toward one another. Now, notice here that he, he doesn't say, ignore your own needs. It, it really takes some balancing of all of the Scripture to, to get a, a full picture. But verse 4, let each of you look out, scope out, not only his own interests, but also the interests of others. And this comes from the basic rules of God. Jesus said to him, to the man who asked, what's the greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in, 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 uh, in the so-called Christian self-esteem movement, what they've said is you're not able to love your neighbor until you love yourself. And that is not at all what God said. What God actually said right here is, give your neighbor the place you usually give yourself. And I think the simplest illustration is, is going to the grocery store. If some of you uh, go to Hagen on your way home, in case you get snowed in in the blizzard of 2012, when you go up to the check stand, you will look back and forth trying to find what? Shortest line. Does anybody go to the longest line and say, Hey, mister, that line is shorter. You should go there. No, because we want the first place. What he actually says here is, treat your neighbor that way. Say, look, I want to give myself the first place. Give it to him. He doesn't say that you should not take care of yourself but you love him as you love yourself. God doesn't tell us to hate ourselves. He doesn't tell us to neglect ourselves. What he commands is that we put our neighbor or our churchmate on the same level of importance or higher than we put ourselves. When you get out of bed in the morning, there are things that we have to do to be ready to meet the public and carry on the business of life. That is not selfish ambition. When we come to church, we desire that God deepen our relationship to him. That is not selfish ambition. But when we get out of bed or come to church refusing to be concerned with anyone but self, that is selfish ambition. That is sin. And so Jesus sets the great example in verses 6 through 8, and we looked at that on Christmas Day when he he said, I have the right to a certain existence in heaven, but I'm going to set that aside, take on a human nature, live a humble life, die a, a terribly humble death, and, and in order to care for these people. The Apostle Paul gives us an example in chapter 2, verse 17. Let's look down there. He says, yes, And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. When you think about serving the Lord, 
in the church, one of the greatest challenges we have, and I, I, I would suppose it's always been this way, I can only speak for this generation, is time. And there's a real temptation to say, I, 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 I don't have time to leave my family or to leave my job or leave my pursuits in order to do this thing over here. If I give to them, I won't have any over there. Look at what Paul said. He said, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. He gave to them even though it cost him. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is, am I willing to esteem others better than myself and care for their needs? We're tempted to think we can't afford that because it will impoverish us and our needs will go unmet. But if we know these promises, then we can rest in God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The stuff of life. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches by Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing from jail saying, look, you put the Lord first and he'll take care of you. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love this promise because what it says is there are many things God asks us to do that are hard. But if you look to God saying, I know God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, then you trust in God's blessing when he wants to give it. 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, yet all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. We give ourselves to doing what God has asked us to do, not worrying about the exaltation, not worrying about the significance And God says, I know when you will need that. And I will give that to you when you need that. We don't need to worry about feeling good about ourselves because God says, if you need that, I'll give it to you. When a certain church in Dallas, Texas became divided, the rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other one from the church's property. This, despite the scripture's warning about taking such matters before the public courts. The story, of course, hit the Dallas newspapers and garnered considerable interest from the readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the dispute was remanded to the court, the church court, where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one side. The losers withdrew and formed another church nearby. It was reported in the Dallas newspapers that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. The trouble began when at a church dinner, 
an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child sitting next to him. Yeah. We can absolutely walk together in the Lord's work. But it will come at the expense, at the cost, at the work of crucifying our self-will. May God help us take up our cross and follow him so that we can live out his desire for unity in this part of his body.